It won't take longer than two and a half hours, like Jeff says. That's fine. No? Oh, wow. So, I got a couple of questions this morning because it's very interesting as you're looking through the book of Acts. You see different things going on. So let me ask you a couple of questions. So let's say that you have a party, an event that you've scheduled, something that you just decided to do for friends and family, and you have it, and then everybody comes, and then they all tell you, oh, what a wonderful time it was. You had a great party. It was so amazing to get together again, and we had such a good time. It could even be a holiday dinner. This was an amazing thing. And you get all these accolades, and everybody's telling you how wonderful you were and how great you did, right? So... That's a good feeling, isn't it? When that, you know, people know you worked hard and, you did, and, you, and you're very excited because they all enjoyed it. So what happens after receiving all of those thank yous and great jobs and you, did, and you get one person that comes up and says, you know, you could have had more pumpkin pie. You know, you could have, you know, there wasn't enough tea to go around. There wasn't enough drinks. There wasn't. So you got one person, you got 25 people that loved it, and then you got one person. So tell me, when you go to bed at night, put your head in the pillow, who do you think about? There you go. So I find it very interesting that no matter how much encouragement we receive, at any time if we receive a challenge or a rejection, one out of 50, 60, all we think about is the one. Amen? But y'all know better. Amen? Amen? Thank you. So when we get to that, so now let's think about this for a minute. When just the one person comes to the Christmas, you think about that most. And so as we look at what Paul did on his first missionary journey, because where Jeff last week was excuse me, was able to start that first missionary journey. This week we're going to, I'm going to give you a little update, catch you up to point, and then we're going to finish that first missionary journey. But it's an amazing thing that we know that Paul had three of them, he had three commissioned missionary journeys throughout the New Testament. <clears throat> and in those three, he had one goal in every one of them, didn't he? That was to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, to let people know how much Jesus loved them so much that he went to the cross to die for them so that they could be with him in heaven. That was his purpose in every journey he did. So we're going to look at the dates first. It's important that you know some facts about this journey, and, and Jeff gave us a little bit of this. I'm going to talk about it again. So what are the dates of this first journey? How we can put a date on this journey is because of the events dated before he left Antioch, which is in Syria. So if we had a big map up here in front of us, um, Antioch in Syria is over here a little bit down, okay? But, and I'm facing this way just for not to be rude, I apologize. So it's down here, okay? So Paul knows that he needs to get from this point, and here's, he's going to go down a little bit into an island, and then he's going to travel about 1,200 miles north. So the total trip's about 1,400 miles that he travels in this time. Now, the amazing part of this traveling is that he doesn't have jets or airplanes. He has boats that are a little slower than the boats. They're not like, you know, the Catalina boats that get there in 25, 30 minutes. 
So as we look at this, and Paul's getting ready to do that, we know that in AD 48, in the spring of this, this is where his first missionary started. And that's important because it's not like Paul was a young man. He was somewhere around, well, he was actually young compared to me, but he was like 32 years old. So the length of this journey that he would have taken would have taken four to ten months, anywhere in between. So what would have been the difference in between that time? Simply that the response of the people. Would you agree with that? Depending on what happened in each city that he went into was how long it would take for the complete journey. Now as we look at the complete journey, we realize, wow, they traveled 1,300 miles. Most of it by walking. One day, so in one day, they can walk about, walk, excuse me, they walk in about 20 to 22 miles. So there you go is how long, I can tell you how long it takes to get to each place. Some of the places are 15 miles away. Some of the places are 60, 90 miles away. Some of the places are over um, 600 miles away. In all of those cities that we're going to be talking about in a minute, and all that traveling, they never ceased to keep going. They kept going. Tired, everything, and it's, we're talking about springtime, so it's beginning to be spring where it's a little bit cooler, it's a little bit warmer, but now let's say they go three to four months, they go from, let's say if they go in our calendar, and there's, it's, there's some different names, they go from March to August, September, which means now they're traveling through the desert in the summertime. Whenever they started their journeys, they were refreshed, filled, had lots of provisions, and they knew they had the joy of the Lord inside them, and they were all fired up. We're going to go share the gospel with people, and we're going to let people know that Jesus loves them, that he died on the cross, that he came just so that they could spend eternity with him in heaven. And they don't have to do anything to earn this. It was just that he had to go, and that's what it matters. So when Paul and Barnabas were sent out on this mission from the church in Antioch, Syria, like I said, they're down over here, and they're getting ready to go. Now, there's a big body of water called the Mediterranean Sea in between a lot of this where they're going. So since his encounter, and, and by the way, let's remember one thing, that Paul was, this is the first time Paul has been sent since a certain thing happened in the ninth chapter of Acts. Remember that? He was on his journey. He had been sent by the Roman centurion government to do one thing. What? Capture Christians, put them in jail, get them to shut up about Jesus. That was his job the last time he was sent. And now here he is. He's going to be sent. It's about six years later. And he's getting ready to go be sent again. But this time, he is being sent by the one who called him. How many times in your life have you realized where you were before you came to know the Lord? And you went to places that you probably wouldn't go to after you knew the Lord. But you were being sent to those places out of a desire for what? Fun, sometimes to get high, sometimes to get loaded, to drink with friends, to do things like that. Sometimes just to party. But now we go to different places because when we go to the different places we go to now, we go because we want to have fun and fellowship with our friends and we stay sober. 
You know, many of you know that when I started out as a musician, as a young man, I played with rock and roll bands and I did not know Jesus. We did a lot of different things at the beginning of playing that music than we do now when we play this music. Some of those things were harmful, <laughs> to say the least. Now then, when I'm sent to go and play music, when I'm sent to share the word, when I'm sent, the excitement that dwells within me is a whole lot different because now I get to have an eternal mindset. See, if you want to write something down today, as, as I gave you note lines in the back of your bulletins, you want to write down having an eternal mindset because you need to think about that every time you do, go, be, anything that you're having to do with Jesus in his word or at a time when you need to follow who he is, you need to have an eternal mindset because, my dear friends, when rejection, rejection and discouragement come, you will not be able to handle it without that eternal mindset, without the strength of the Lord behind us, without that indwelling of the Spirit within our lives, we aren't able to do very much, are we? Amen? And so in that moment in time, it's remembering that, okay, I've got this very big thing to do over here. That's going to be hard to do. I don't know if I really want to do that because that's hard. It's going to be tough to do this. Why do I, you know, do I really need to do that and everything? Okay, or... The other eternal mindset would think, okay, I need to go do this. I know it's going to be hard to do, and it's going to be, take a lot of strength. So what am I going to do? I'm going to follow the Holy Spirit of God in leading, right? Have an eternal mindset and say, guess what? I'm in the strength of the Lord today, and there's nothing the demons of hell can do about it. Amen? Amen. That's the best way to think about eternal mindset. So remember that. So since his encounter on the, on the Damascus Road, Paul was now on a new mission to share the good news first to the Jews and then to the Greeks. So I'm going to give you a little bit of background in chapter 13 to remind you of where we started and where we are now. Pastor Jeff gave us great information on how the journey started. The church in Syrian Antioch, the one down here, came and commissioned Paul and Barnabas to share the good news with the Jews and Gentiles throughout the Galatian area. Does Galatia sound a little bit familiar to anybody? There's a whole letter that Paul wrote to the people of Galatia. The amazing part that I like is people think that Galatians is written to a people in a certain city. So if you think of the fact that California, let's see, it would be California, Arizona, Nevada, right? That's to the kind of area that the book of Galatians, the letter of Galatians was written to. It was written to a whole region. So that means there was more than one copy of it, and we know this really because in the Library of Alexandria where they have the Dead Sea Scrolls copied, the copies we have of the, of the letter to the Galatians, which is a scroll about two to three feet high when they put it all together, because that's how you could tell how long the books were in the Bible because they were, different, they were scrolls rolled up and they were different sizes. So as we get to the point of thinking about where the, how that was all traveled, it had to be carried by camel and everything else because obviously it weighed a little bit. But here's the question that I get a lot. If they had more than one of these giant scrolls, how many did they have? Well, that's a good question. Some of them kind of got lost. Some of them got destroyed. The enemy didn't want them all to get there. Sometimes they were interrupted in their travels. Sometimes they didn't get to the people they were supposed to. But in all of that, the way that that was dealt with by Paul and Barnabas and the apostles was, okay, you don't want to deliver the paper? We'll go there ourselves. 
And remember, we're not talking about people who could travel by plane, train, or automobile. This is basically people that walked. And when they could use a boat, it was great because then they could sleep before they walked another 800 miles. So as they leave Syria and Antioch, they're commissioned to do this and to the Galatian region. They left Antioch, went to a place called Seleucia, which is only about a 15-mile uh, walk, only 15 miles. That was an easy walk to them. Down to the other end, and then they get to... They um, get on a boat, and they leave for the island of Cyprus. They get on that boat. They get to Salamis, which is on the, it would be on the west coast of Cyprus. I have to look that way when I do it, sorry. Salamis, and then on the other end of the island is Paphos. They continued to preach all the way across this 90-mile island. Isn't that fun? That's where, you know, last week Jeff talked about they met the musician, and then when he kept going and trying to be against the word of the Lord, like Paul said, Paul looked at him and said, I'm sorry, you're done now. And in fact, God's going to make you blind and you're going to have to be led around in the house. And so through all of that, the proconsul of Rome, one of the big cheeses in the Roman government, he found out who Jesus was and he came to know the Lord and all of his household. They left from Paphos, that island. They went to the southern tip of now. They've gone all the way across the Mediterranean Sea. And they get to the southern tip of Asia Minor. And they left from Paphos. They got to Perga in Pamphylia. Perga was a, a coastal town much like Long Beach or Newport. And when they got there, John Mark decided this is way too hard to do. And he left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, you're going to learn more about that next week in the 15th and the 16th chapters of the book of Acts. So I won't get into a whole thing with John Mark yet. And going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch. Now, that's the one that's 900 miles north in the middle of the desert. It's 3,375 feet high. So the walk to it was not an easy task. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Now remember, Paul is a trained, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was in the tribe of Benjamin. He went through the training with a man named Gamaliel, who was like the leader trainer for all of the high priests in the Jewish nation. Now, Paul was in line to become the same as Annas or Ananias and become the high priest of the Jewish nation and be leading the Sanhedrin that before Damascus. And then once he got on the road to Damascus, Jesus decided, sorry, you're not doing that. You're going to go here with me. And he fixed that. That's how God works a lot. If you think you're going one place and all of a sudden you get an idea, oh, I don't want to go there, just go because you're going to wind up there anyways. I promise. Don't be a Jonah. It doesn't work well. You'll wind up in a fish. Anyway, so as they were going on synagogue, after reading the law and the prophets, the brethren in the place, that means the fellow Jews in the synagogue said, if you have any exhortation of the people... Please say it. So Paul is invited to speak in a Jewish synagogue. Now, they're believing because Paul is a Pharisee of Pharisees and Jew of Jews and all that stuff. He's going to start talking about Isaiah, which, okay, he did. Guess who Isaiah talked about? Work with me. Who did Isaiah talk about? Jesus, thank you. That's a good thing. And so as he's preaching that, he talks, as they are, get finished proclaiming eternal salvation for everyone, the Jews and the Gentiles. 
He's talking about who Jesus was, what he did, all the things that Jesus did, the miracles he performed. And they were even allowed to do some miracles later on, we're going to see, at their hands. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the meeting in 13 verses 42 and 43, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them at the next Sabbath. So now they're not going to go on anywhere because now they're going to be in this town for another week at least. And as the meeting was ending after that week, many of the Jews and the proselytes, everybody understand what a proselyte is. That's somebody who was a Gentile who did everything they could to become Jewish in the eyes of everybody around them. But they weren't born in Israel. They just became Jewish in their, that's what the, a proselyte is. And they were urging them to continue, urging Paul and Barnabas to continue in the grace of God. They were giving their blessings to say, keep doing what you're doing. You were doing wonderful. It was great. We loved it. Many accolades. and Yeah, keep going. Then, in chapter 13, we get to verses 44 and 45. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city came to assemble to hear the word of the Lord from Paul. But, anytime you see a but in there with a comma, get ready for a change in story in the Bible. That's what's going to happen. That's a big comma there, and I'm not saying anything else about the other word. When the unbelieving Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and began to blaspheme. And say, that's not true. You can't say that, that Jesus did not do that. Jesus was just somebody who walked around proclaiming who he was. He got crucified because he said he was God. So no, we don't believe you. So finally, in the 46th verse of chapter 13, this one is heavy. Chapter 13 and the 46th verse is this. Here's what Paul says to them. One of the saddest things I've ever heard out of his mouth. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you were chosen as God's people. But since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're going to turn and go to the Gentiles. Did you catch that? Because you yourselves judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. I mean, there's the whole free will thing. That's how God brings it in. See, we don't have to come to Jesus and know him as, as Savior. We don't have to do that. We're not robots. God didn't send down somebody to zap us and say, you have to do what God says, you're all done. That never happened. From the time of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve had free choice, okay? You got this whole giant garden, which is like 14 or 15 acres big, and yet you got one little tree that says, just don't touch that tree. So where's the first tree they ran to? I mean, you just wonder, say, okay, let me make sure I understand this. I got all these trees. And then you got this little slithering snake that comes around and says, oh, by the way, you know, you're not going to die. God doesn't do that. How many times in your life when you knew that God was asking you to do something for him, so much as a phone call to a friend, 
a letter to somebody to say, guess what, I went to church today and here's what I heard a crazy man say. You know what, this week God has, has done things for me. I want to tell somebody. What's the first thing that comes into your mind? Now nah, they're busy. You know, you don't want to bother them. You know, let's, let's think about it. Hold on, just think about this for a minute. You're going to be interrupting their time. They're, they don't have the time to take to hear about you and Jesus. How many of us have ever been redirected that way? Come on, you can tell me. It's, I already know. So I want to ask you then this, okay? Do you judge that person? You, do you, first off, we believe that we are unworthy, but we work worthily for the Lord. Difference there. That's a whole different sermon. I'm not going to take the time to break that up, but that's just something to think about. So since they determine themselves unworthy, every time that we get a chance to share the gospel and we say, you know what, I don't want to burden them with it. I'm not going to bring it to them. You just judge them unworthy for eternal life. I'm not taking that on. I don't want that heavy. Mm -mm. I'm not doing it. Because I don't ever want to be that. If the Lord says to me, call so-and-so, I get on the phone. And some of you have received phone calls from me. Said, I was just thinking about what it's so far as some of the guys, I just go, what'd you do? And they'll say, okay, first off, how did you know? I said, well, I didn't until right now. And I don't need to know their things. I just need to pray for you that you won't do it again. Yes, please do, Pastor. It's, I don't want to do it again. Okay. And it's never anything big or giant or anything. It's usually something that, you know. I mean, it's been so weird sometimes that one time in Nevada, my wife can attest to this, I called somebody because God just says, call him right now. And he didn't answer the phone. His brother did. I can't believe you're calling right now. Why? Because Troy just turned his cement mixer over in a canyon. And he's on his way to the hospital. How did you know it? It just happened 15, 20 minutes ago. How did you know this? I said, God told me. Which freaked him out because he wasn't a believer. Wait, what? See, when you answer that question, you have no idea when God's going to call you to do something. When Paul was sent to these places, he didn't know who was there. He just knew he was supposed to go do this. For the Lord commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles. This is what God told him. That you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. Now, when the Gentiles heard Paul say this in, in verses 47 to 49 in chapter 13, when he said that, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout the whole region. So now again, we go from being judged and kicked out to all of a sudden now we said, here's what God commanded us. We make another, we share the word of God some more. And then all of a sudden more accolades come, right? And then in, in verse 50. In chapter 13. But the Jews that were unbelieving incited the devout women and men of prominence and drove Paul and Barnabas out of their district. So that would be like driving them out of the county. Here's Paul and Barnabas' response. It says, well, okay. They shook, in verse 51, they shook the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. So they get almost thrown out of one place. They preach the word. They get tossed out of a district again, 
and they just went to a different city. <laughs> and then verse 52 at the end of chapter 13 says this. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Even after the two weird things that happened to them. So instead of getting depressed, bummed, discouraged, and everything else about the two incidences, they start concentrating on all the incidences where people actually love Jesus, came to a knowledge of him, are now in the family of God with them, and experiencing eternal life. When you concentrate, when you think about and are eternal thinking in your thinking, if you're thinking eternally, you're going to always have the strength to continue. If you want to make the main thing the main thing, like we talk about all the time in our church, you have to think eternally. If you don't think eternally, it's your choice. We have a free choice here. We can think that way anytime we want to. And if we don't, we don't have to. But if you want to have the joy of the Lord, for the joy of the Lord will be your strength, start thinking eternally. I would love for each one of us tonight at home, take a small little piece of paper, go into your bathroom. See, everybody winds up in their bathroom before they go to bed. You have to brush your teeth. Well, I'm hoping. You brush your teeth and things like that, right? So on the top of your mirror right there, put two words on a little piece of paper and just tape it up there for one week, just one week. That's all I'm asking for. Say, think eternally. So that every day when you walk in that room, the first thing you're going to see is a little piece of paper, whether it's white, yellow, red, green, blue, whatever, I don't care. But you're going to get it up and say, think eternally. And if you do, leave it up for two weeks. If it encourages you. Leave it there and find out that it not only what you're seeing becomes something you're reminded of, but after a while, dear family, it becomes a habit. And that's where we want thinking eternally to become, as we want thinking eternally to become a habit. Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. So they shook the dust off their feet. They went in. The disciples were continually filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. End of chapter 13. Now let's go into chapter 14. And that's the title for today's sermon is Speaking Boldly. I didn't have enough room to put dot, 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 even in rejection. Because in verse 1 it says, remember they says they left and they went to Iconium. So verse 1 says this, they entered Iconium, entered the synagogue of the Jews together, spoke in a manner that a large number of people believed, both Jews and Greeks. Large numbers. Anytime they talked about large numbers in the Bible, it's always over 100, just so you know. We're not talking about 10 or 12 people. It's always over 100. A large number of people believe, both Jews and Greeks. So there's lots of accolades going on. The very next thought, but, comma, the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. The interesting part about this, and you know me, I have to go back and look at the translations when I do this. And I went in and I started translating out of the Greek my own self. And I started to see that what it really said, there's a magic word there. It says poisoning their minds or causing their minds to think evil. That's interesting. 
But then I went deeper and looked into the original Koine Greek, and it says, Ikakosan, made evil affect the souls of the Gentiles against the brethren. Have you ever been to a place where any, something anybody says highly affects you, right? Oh, that was so nice of them to say that to me. Or you know what so-and-so said right to my face? You know, I can't say the name of this person, but it was a family member. They're from the South. And there were times when people would walk in the room and they'd say, Oh, honey, what has happened to you? You've gained so much weight. Bless your heart. See, in the South, that bless your heart can follow anything. Oh, honey, I told my sister one time when she was like in her teens, she says, Oh, honey, what happened to your face? Bless your heart. That had a bad effect on us, on my sister, myself. Sometimes I'd be playing guitar as a very young, like 12 years, 13 years old, I'd be playing guitar for a family, sing along, fly away, doing all the old gospel songs. And we'd be doing that together, and most everybody say, oh, that's wonderful. And I'd get one person walked up to me and say, you know, that was the wrong key to be singing in. And what do you think Bill was thinking of the whole time? Well, I really messed that up because I should have been in a right key. Many times it doesn't take much for Ikakosan that evil will affect the souls of the Gentiles. Not just your thinking. It affects what you feel down inside. It affects so that how you continue on in your practice of sharing the gospel. Ikakosan is one of the worst things that we can accept on ourselves. Because right now, at this point, they, got, they just got to Iconium. The very first day they went into the synagogue and started speaking. Then all of a sudden, all these people turned against them. Right? Those who dis... And here's a, a, a little note I want to share just for free. You don't want to even charge you extra for this one. Those who disbelieve have to make sure that they use the right words to spread evil and affect your ability to do what you do and spread as much hatred as possible, right? If they know that they're guilty of not wanting to be not only in the family of God, but to do everything against who he is, they got to make sure that they have backup. And when they have backup, you're thinking, well, everybody must hate Jesus because now that's all I see on the TV. No, that's not true. That is not true. So what is Paul and Barnabas and the disciples' response to these people just inciting evil against them? I love verse 3. It says, okay, so therefore, they spent a long time there and went boldly, speaking boldly with reliance on the Lord. All of those evil thoughts that people were getting against them, the threats they were getting, the, the challenges they were receiving, the rejection they were receiving, here was their answer. Okay, so since they're going to do that, we're going to go and speak boldly with reliance on God because we know he put us here for a reason. They just went through and kept doing it anyways. They didn't stop. Now, they didn't do any illegal. You see, you don't see anybody... And I'm not trying to be political here. You don't see anybody attacking somebody because of that. You don't see the, the apostles and the disciples, once they get rejected and, and people get mad at them, you don't see them reacting with physical violence against them. Now we're going to continue sharing the word of the Lord. Because it is our God who brings peace, love, and kindness to the generations. Amen? 
But to the people of the city who were divided, this is verse 4, were divided with allegiance, some of the Jews and some to the apostles. So now the city is divided, right? We don't know what's going on. The city's divided. Paul and Barnabas keep sharing the word anyways, but then verses 5 and 6 come. Then they heard that an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews to stone them. They became aware of it, and they fled to Lystra and Derbe. Now, I find that interesting, that at some point in time, what they were speaking gets to where there's going to be violence against them. Isn't that terrible? They're sharing free salvation of Jesus to a generation of people, and all they want to do is they hate it so much that they're going to almost kill him. Beat them to death. So they said, cool. This is God's signal to us. Let's move on. So they go to Lystra and Derby, another 97 miles to the east. And while they're there, they continued to preach the gospel, it says in verse 7. That's the main gist of the whole verse 7. They continued to preach the gospel. So all of the rejection, the threats, and everything else they had the discouraging thoughts did not change their minds. How come it didn't change their minds? Because they're thinking eternally. That's why. I am not going to consider the people of Iconium unworthy for eternal life. If God wants these people to come to him, if Jesus wants them to come to him and have him as Lord and Savior in their lives, I'm not getting in the way. And then when they get the threats of, of a beating and death, that means that if they are successful, are they afraid of that? No. But that means that they couldn't continue doing what they're doing if they let them succeed at that. So what do they do? They go to another town. Go to two towns. By the way, the churches at Lystra and Derby are still there, by the way. They continued to preach the gospel in verse 7. And in fact, they were continued to preach the gospel so much that Paul was watching a lame man as he sat down, and he was lame from birth. His legs did not work. He could not walk. This is an older man. We, they figured that he's somewhere between 22 and 25, and he's intently listening to what Paul is saying. And as he's intently listening, all of a sudden, Paul's eyes gaze on him, and he fixes, and he just looks at him, and he goes, hey, get up and walk. He didn't say, go over there, put anything on him. He didn't do. See, when God decides to move, ladies and gentlemen, dear family of mine, when God decides to move, he's not going to tell you that, okay, you have to do this whole ceremony to make it happen. It was as simple as Paul stopping in the middle of speaking. He's over here speaking like this, and he knows this guy's over here. It's like me looking at Brad and saying, Brad, get up and walk. What are you doing? The guy gets up and walks, and Paul just starts preaching again and starts talking to him. And says, so what do you do with that? You don't celebrate it. We don't put it on TV. We don't do anything. We just say, get up and walk, and he walks, and then Paul goes back to preaching the Word of God. Here's the issue of, of Lystrans. They're in an area called Lyconia. It has its own language. It's a very different dialect. It's almost... The dialect, almost like a Portuguese language between that and Hebrew. It's really strange, their language, at this time. And so what happens is, all of a sudden, the Lyconians say, Oh my gosh, the gods have come down as men. 
We need to offer sacrifice to them. They're like gods to us. And that we want to sacrifice them. And they began to bringing the fatted calf and all of the things to sacrifice to these men. And Paul and Barnabas <laughs> never had a chance to tell the, life, the living sacrifice of Jesus for their sins. Distraction. See, the enemy knew that, wait a minute, they just performed a miracle right before their eyes, and Paul still wants to tell the gospel story of the living Christ. He wants to tell you that he died for your sins, that you have eternal life through him. He wants to tell them that he doesn't get a chance because now the enemy has created this great distraction, and all of a sudden now all these goofy people are going to make sacrifices to these men. The first thing that they start doing is ripping off their clothes to show them, no, look, we're mortal men just like you, which don't worry, I'm never going to do, so I am not doing that. But they walk through and they say, look, you guys need to stop this. No, we are mortal men just like you. We're doing that. And please understand, and then Paul gives them a dissertation on who Jesus is. So the enemy's thought was, well, let's create this distraction so they'll quit talking about Jesus. That didn't work. So what happens then is that Paul goes back and says, oh, you know what? Here, let's use it. We'll show you. We're mortal men, but let me tell you about why you just saw what you saw. Don't let distractions kill your eternal thinking. You can't do that. You can't let it, things like that kill your eternal thinking. If the TV media things going on, the TV, the computer, your phone, whatever, is stopping you from thinking eternally, guys, turn it off. Stop. Go to read the Word of God. Go to listen to the Bible. Listen to whatever you want to listen to. Whoever your favorite speaker is, listen to them. Do whatever you need to do to break that cycle. So, wait a minute. This is, I'm thinking too temporally. Now I'm concentrating on what's happening right there. In a little bit, we're going to say a prayer for Israel. So just hold on. That's coming. So Paul restrains. He gets the supposing him. And so here's what happens. They restrained the crowd from hero worship. They stopped them. They said, knock it off. Don't do this. We don't want to do this. Proving they were but mortal men like everyone else. That's in verse um, 19. No, 18. 14 through 18. Then verse 19. But, comma. Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. So in other words, the ones that hated him up north actually came down to where they were in Derby and Lystra. We were actually in Lystra at this time. Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and stoned Paul. They didn't say they were going to do it this time. They just came and did it. They dragged, they beat him so bad that they drug him out of the city. He was dragged out of the city and they dropped him on the desert floor and left him there for dead. Thinking, we won. The enemy has completed their task. We stopped him from talking about Jesus, and now it's all done. He's dead. So they, all the bad guys, go back into the city. The disciples then who were with them then started coming out. <clears throat> but here's the fun part. Whenever those who work for evil reject Jesus... One way for them to feel better about themselves, excuse me, and better about what they've done is to work hard to take as many parts as possible away from God. Do you know that's true? Say amen. They're going to work twice as hard to take the hearts away from Jesus 
that we do because we have the Holy Spirit with us and we're thinking eternally. So while they drag Paul out, they drop him on the ground. Then all of a sudden the disciples come and all the verse says is this, verse 20. It says, but while the disciples stood around him, many believed that they were at this point praying for what they were going to do. Not necessarily praying for Paul. They were probably praying for Paul as well. Lord, we're sorry, you know, thinking he's dead as well. So they're all in a circle surrounding Paul, standing like this. And what does it say? He got up and entered the city. Wait, did they lay hands on him? Did they call out in Jesus' name? Did God come down with a lightning bolt? What happened? All it says is, and while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. First off, he got up. Okay, that's God's power. That just happens. God just, we were looking at him. So, so let's imagine this. There's five or six of us around, seven, four. There's, there's six of us standing around him, looking down, and just hoping he's going to be okay. He gets up and walks away and walks through us and just walks in the city. He didn't say anything to him, according to this. He just walked into the city. Can you imagine yourself being one of those six people? We're standing there looking, and we're going, oh, Lord Jesus, please help him. We're so sorry. Now what are we going to do? And Paul gets up and walks away. They're still standing there looking at each other, wondering, okay, now what do we do? Well, let's go with him wherever he's going. And the next day, he went with Barnabas to Derby, which is about 15 to 20 miles away. They preached then to that city, strengthening the souls of the disciples. Still no reaction to the fact that he was dead, gets up and walks into the city. Strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And here's what he said to them. My dear brothers and sisters, through many tribulations, in verse 22, he says, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean that you get to go to heaven for getting beat up and everything else. The kingdom of God is not just the place where God is. It's the presence of God and doing his work on this earth. So that you understand that when it says we must enter the kingdom of God, every time I go out, every time I make that phone call, any time I write a letter, a card, do anything to go visit, take somebody to lunch just because I know they're feeling bad. Anytime I do that, when I go to do something just for the pure spiritual encouragement and thinking eternally to help somebody, anytime I do that, I enter into the kingdom of God. That counts. It's big. To us, it's a minor task. Take so-and-so to lunch. Yeah, I can do that. Take so-and-so a pizza. I can do that. Help them to understand how much I care about them. Just shake their hand and say, love you, brother. Love you, sister. Just that is more important to God than all of the accolades that you can receive on doing all stuff that you want to be noted for. It doesn't work that way. So what did they do as they were getting to the church? They appointed, in verses 23 to 25, they appointed elders for them in every church, praying, fasting, laying hands, commending them to the Lord and his word. So they get done at a place, every time they went to visit any church throughout the Galatian region, they went to every one of those churches. Because it says, later on you're going to learn, they didn't just go to the churches, go down, then go home. 
They went to the churches, got to this one. They started getting ugly and tried to beat them up and kill them. So what'd they do? They go back up and go to the same churches again. Because they had one mission to share the gospel. And I, and I can just imagine that discussion as they're walking. Okay, so this is a bill just throwing his thoughts into this. Because this is how weird I think sometimes. I can imagine Paul saying to them, hey, you know what? There was a guy in there that I knew he was ready to accept the Lord, but these people were pressuring him, and he, he bought into their stuff, and he kind of just went behind them. Not really saying anything, but I know God wanted to talk to him. We're going to go back up to the place where they almost killed me and tell him. That's eternal thinking. That's thinking eternally for the sake of one person. Then it says they returned from Antioch, returned to Antioch, for which they had been commissioned. Commended to the grace of God for the work they had accomplished with the Holy Spirit. So this is finally I would like to do. Something to think about. When we get to the point of our eternal thinking, when we study God's word, we do so to get encouragement to bring some enlightenment into our life. Amen? Whoa. When we study God's work, not if, when we study God's work, we do so to bring enlightenment and courage to ourselves and others, right? Amen? Amen. Thank you. Oh, sheesh, I thought you fell asleep on me. One, there, so I see three things going on here, and we're going to we're gonna call up the team in just a second. The gospel of Jesus Christ will always receive varied responses. There's going to be both good and bad. The biggest thing is how much louder are you going to listen to the good than the bad? That's key. There will be moments of grateful acceptance, moments of straight-up opposition and anger. Every moment of tribulation will never be wasted by God's Holy Spirit, just so you know. Things that are tough everywhere, we can't, they just are. We can be faithful to our commitments. You know the story of the starfish. The little boy's picking up hundreds. He's got a hundred on the beach, and he picks up one at a time and throws them back. Somebody says, dude, you're never going to make a difference in this. What are you doing? He goes, it matters to this one, and it matters to this one, and it matters to this one. One starfish at a time. Secondly, in 14, verse 21, Paul's words to the believers in Derby: We must go through many hardships to enter that kingdom. He's talking to new believers like he knows they will be called to share the gospel. It doesn't matter how long you've known Jesus. All you have to do is tell your story. You don't have to go to seminary before you start to share Jesus. The stronger your testimony, the stronger the fear of the enemy. Some of my friends in this room are being blasted by the enemy. Darts and arrows of dis disruption, discouragement, sometimes depression. And it's because you have something in you that makes the enemy fear. Sometimes God uses that rejection and discouragement to refocus our attention. And number three. What do we do when we're faced with discouragement brought on by the people's criticism or rejection? Do we quit and run away? See, because Satan's trick is to preoccupy us with each rejection. We concentrate on that so that we forget about the positive things that God is doing in our lives. Creating fear in God's people and his creation is his main goal to stop us from following our calling. <clears throat> I have multiple family members whose job requires bravery at the highest levels. 
And here's what I've learned. <clears throat> Bravery is not the absence of fear, ladies and gentlemen. Bravery is taking that fear and turning it into a motivation to do what God has called you to do. Amen? Amen. That's what you do with bravery. Bravery is recognizing the fear and turning it into your motivation. In each of those three things I just spoke about. I'm going to have the team come on up. In each of those three things, we need to do like the disciples did when they stood over Paul's lifeless body. When he'd been dragged out for dead, they prayed, then they prayed, and they prayed some more. But when they did, they didn't expect what they saw. How much better would it have been to walk over and say, Paul, get up, knowing that he was going to get up. You see, even the disciples had moments of discouragement and fear, just like all of us do. But they still prayed and God answered. Ladies and gentlemen, dear family, here's what I hope you know. No matter what the fear is or the rejection or the discouragement that you're feeling this very moment, God is still there. He didn't leave. Turn to him. Talk to him. Then remember this from many years ago. Some of the older people in this congregation, remember I challenged you. Remember the six minutes of silence. Some of my dear friends in this place have called me the six-minute man, thinking they're very funny. Because here's the thing about the six minutes. You don't do anything. You listen. You just wait for God to call. I don't care if you have to set an alarm for six minutes on your phone or whatever. Six minutes of silence after you pray. Wow. I can promise you, you will experience things you never thought to be true. Could you stand with me, please? first thing I want to pray for today is about what's going on with our family in the land of Israel. You see, those people that were chosen by God so many thousands and thousands of years ago have lived their lives in fear and challenged most of their, their for decades, and they have. So, Heavenly Father, Elohim Adonai, we pray now for your strength, your grace, your peace. Father, give that nation the eternal thinking that God is still their stronghold. As David said in Psalm 27, God is the strength of my life and whom shall I fear? And I don't see a lot of fear there. I see more fear here of, of the people of the Jewish nation who live in our country, that they live in fear. I would pray now that you grant them strength and grace and peace, that they would be able to hear your voice. And Father, I thank you. The book that we read includes their story. So bless them, O oh God, that they would receive the power of Almighty. Today. Lord, in this place. I know that there are those who may be discouraged, who may have experienced rejection at some time. 
I hold them up, O oh God. Ask for your arms to be wrapped around them that they might feel your presence in a powerful way. That they would know who you are and so close that God, at any moment in time, they would know that it is you that is giving them the strength to move on. I pray for those who are struggling. I pray for those who are celebrating that the joy of the Lord inside of them would just tell everybody what has done and we would glorify you with them. Only you know, God, who are those that are in this room who have not received Jesus as Lord and Savior. And if they are here today, may they not leave this place without finding him, God. And this day as we finish in worship, we do so to say thank you for everything and all things that we are. Father, help us to continually be eternally thinking. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Let's worship.